Just because the kitten has her babies in the oven doesn't make them biscuits. <laughs> what is, is that a is that a Maine thing? Like you, yeah, you're you're not from Maine unless like your grandparents were from Maine. Like you're never a, you're you're never a Mainer. You know, you can't just be a Mainer because you were born here. Especially you're especially not a Maina if you call it Mainer. Right, right, Mainas. <laughs> Mainas. Oh, what? the Mainas. I don't even know what that is. Maina, because she's not she wasn't pronouncing it correctly. All right, can, all right, so can you see the Aurora Borealis from out of your window right now? No. no. Hmm. Are, we, are we recording? Yeah, it's been recording. Oh, then I have a very important <laughs> question. What? Who, who's our guest? Well, let, let's, let's lead into that. I am leading into it just now. I just led into it. <laughs> well, I'll give you a hint. I'll give you a hint. Okay. Um, she is in the middle, uh, what I think is probably three weeks of straight darkness. <laughs> So she's in Finland? I, she's way, way north. Way north. Up in the Sami, right. the, the Sami territory. I, up in Finland. I, I'm not familiar with it. But I do think... Um, You've heard of the Ice Hotel, haven't you? I have heard of that, yeah. The, the Ice Hotel is located in Yukasjärve, which is up in the... What? Sa- what did you say? Yukasjärve, which is this geographical, uh, specific geographical location of the Ice Hotel. That's not a word. Uh, up in the Sami region, the region of the Sami people, that sometimes they're called the Lap people, but they prefer Sami. Oh, is that where they get lap band surgery from? <laughs> no, it's where they get lap dancing from. <laughs> oh, jeez. We've already we've already started off on the wrong foot. Don't worry, I'll I'll cut all this out, Sarah. Don't worry about this. But, um, uh, but uh, no, the answer is no, not from Finland, but way far north. Now, if it doesn't snow where you are, mystery guest, um, say you wake up in the morning and there's no new snow and it's warm, do they cancel school? Uh, no, they haven't. They haven't done no. that. I, I figured if it doesn't snow, then you, then the whole city shuts down. Right, right. We only know yeah. how to operate with snow on the streets. All right, so Joe, this is Sarah Schindler. You mean UGA alum Sarah Schindler? University of Maine. Um, you you are a uh, chaired professor emeritus at Maine. Is that right? Yeah, right, right. I've been here for many, many years. Mm-hmm. Uh, mm-hmm. No, I'm in my fifth year teaching at the University of Maine School of Law in Portland. Okay. And does that automatically make you chair or dean no. after five years? Is there a rule like that up there? No, no. It's it's formal, normal processes. Now, if I'm to understand right, and see, I think now that I kind of put two and two together, I understand why Sarah wants to destroy all of our lawns. It's because she lives up there in Maine. Yeah, she never sees her own. It's like, you know, if I can't have it, no one else can either. Is that the is that really the origin of your scholarship? <laughs> Uh, no, I would say it, it more derives from uh, growing up in Georgia in suburban Atlanta and uh, and being around the sort of sprawl that Atlanta is known for and uh, and the manicured lawns everywhere. And, and that really, I think, set a tone for me as a young person and uh, exposed me to one type of life. And then as an adult, I've, I've lived in much more dense urban areas and seen a different type of life and um, have, have sort of formulated my views through those different experiences. Now, now, Sarah, you're, you are an expert in property law and land use, and you've written a number of articles about, um, I, I, I don't know how to describe it. I mean, uh, there's the one about lawns, there's locavore stuff, green buildings. Is there a field? Is there chickens, an emerging? Backyard it, chickens. Backyard chickens. Mm-hmm. It sounds like the emerging field of maybe hipster law. <laughs> is that, is there such a thing? You know, it, it's funny. I have a friend who wrote a paper about tattoos 
And there's another guy who wrote a paper about um, roller derby, and we have jokingly talked about writing some sort of hipsters in the law book. Uh, but that, that's, <laughs> that's a, a future project, post-tenure is, <laughs> is the tattoo, uh, is, that, is that Dave Fagundis or Perzanowski? So those are the, right, those are the two guys. Uh, uh, Aaron Perzanowski wrote the tattoo paper, and then Dave wrote the um, roller derby paper. Roller derby, okay. Mm-hmm. That's the roller derby paper is the that is the best law review journal article title in uh um, in world history. Well, all right. Now that we've gone on this detour, we have to finish it. So talk derby to me. Talk derby to me. It's about <laughs> roller derby names, right? And and so this is somewhat apropos of Sarah's work. Uh, um, so there is no law uh, by which roller derby participants can secure rights in their names. Um, and yet there is a system, right? Mm-hmm. Do I have this right? I mean, I, I've, I saw this article presented and, and, uh, so, you know, if someone else copies your name, there's, there's trouble, right? I, does, it, does anybody know what I'm talking I, about? Right. They beat each other up maybe. <laughs> no, this, it's, 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 a, it's another entry in kind of the norms without law or private law without public law series of papers right i thought it was really interesting uh and and not least of which because it contains many names of roller derby names which are always fun right you're you're good at making up names like that too right christian i well i mean i don't want to toot my own horn over here or anything (laughs) but i I, the truth is that after um going to the athens roller derby and cheering on hello blitz gerald um, I don't, first of all, she's awesome. And second of all, there's no name better than Hello Blitz Gerald. And so I kind of, you know, I've kind of hung up my roller derby naming, whatever equipment you, said, you use you to do You can never that. surpass, uh, that genius. So I don't think so. Stop. Yeah. I don't see how it's possible. <laughs> I really don't. But, um, but, but your work, uh, the stuff you're working on now is kind of in a way is similar. You're looking at how, uh, we can get good results and lawns and land use and backyard chickens and all these great things. Uh, we'll talk about whether they're great things. I, uh, you think so? I think so. Um, but where they are kind of technically illegal or where there isn't clear law and people are just going out and doing stuff. Definitely. Is that right? Yeah, for sure. And I, I think the, the sort of the tie-in between law and norms in this area is quite important because I think they do diverge a lot. We're starting to see in some communities the norms progressing much faster than the law um, where people want to do these things and they want to be able to engage in local board type practices either on their private property or in other property in their communities, but they're finding that the sort of antiquated laws won't allow them to. Right, yeah. can, give me give me an example. Do you have a good, a good example of this? Sure. So the backyard chickens one, I think, is the most common that most people are probably familiar with. It. Oh, everybody's familiar with that. Right. Yeah. Backyard chickens. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So, you know, people want, uh, many people now want to have chickens in their backyards. They want the eggs. Uh, but a lot of, of zoning ordinances say no farm animals or farm type animals in urban areas or in areas that are zoned exclusively for residential use. And so some people have done this illegally, harboring these backyard chickens anyway. Um, but then if a neighbor complains and the code enforcement officer comes out, uh, those, those people can be cited or fined. They could be required to remove those chickens. So that type of thing is happening on a, a, a bigger scale around the country with other sorts of urban agricultural uses as well. So this is backyard chicken civil disobedience. Mm-hmm. And, and, and I think, you know, to people who aren't familiar with... Um, you know, uh, uh, either the locavore movement or the new food movement or whatever you want to, uh, however you want to refer to it. Um, I, 
they may not realize why this is important, or they, or they may or they may think it's unimportant. Uh, you want to make the case that it, this is an important thing. Like, why why should we care about backyard chickens? It sounds like someone's weird hobby, right? <laughs> sure. So I, I think for a lot of people who are interested in this sort of idea of locavorism, which to be clear, locavorism is is the the feeling that some people want to consume um, food that's grown uh, and processed close to their homes. So what what we're really what's at the heart of this is avoiding the industrial agricultural model of, of food production. So I think a lot of people are starting to feel like industrial agriculture um, it harms both their own personal you know human health and also there's a lot of environmental harm associated with it. Uh, and so by consuming foods that are produced and grown raised locally, they feel like they can avoid uh, not only the sort of intense oil oil intensive practices that go into the farming, the sort of monocrop farming that happens with industrial agricultural practices, but also the shipping, right? You hear a lot about this idea of food miles traveled. How far did your food um, travel to get from the farm to your plate? And so this concept of reducing the carbon associated with transporting food long distances could be a good thing. Now, of course, you know, there's, there's studies on the other side saying, well, actually, it makes more sense to grow a tomato where it grows most efficiently without artificial, you know, without the need for greenhouses and then ship it along with a bunch of other tomatoes across the country, that that's actually a more environmentally friendly practice than, uh, you know, heating and and using energy for for greenhouses to grow tomatoes where they wouldn't naturally be growing. So there are definitely arguments on both sides. But on the whole, there's been a lot of research showing that um, the sort of large-scale industrial agricultural processes are... Uh, detrimental to the environment and to to human health. Yeah, how do you even begin to figure that kind of thing out? I mean, this is this sounds like the kind of uh, debate back and forth that you uh, that you know I often see on the internet where people point to various kinds of data and it's you know well a, a, you know one person says uh, uh, it, it, it's so much better to have uh, food which is produced near your home because you know where it comes from and the uh, there's less shipping as you say et cetera et cetera and someone else says well you're not counting this thing and then someone else says you're not counting that thing. And before you know it, you don't know what to think. Have there been definitive kind of cradle-to-grave studies of energy inputs? And uh, um, and then I guess that's the other problem, right, that this is a, a multi-factor uh, problem. It's not just energy. It's pollution. It's land use. And all these things have to be traded off. And that's not a scientific question. It's a policy question. But um, has any are there just bits and pieces of this out there in studies, or is anyone really taking this on? Yeah, I mean, a, a lot of different people are looking at this, and and again, I think it's becoming um, more interesting to a lot of people. So more research is being done. But from what I've seen at this point, there's still just a lot of different studies. And you sort of mentioned some of the big issues. You know, it's it's not just we we can't just look at carbon. You know, we can't just look at one thing here because there are all these broader issues associated with it, and especially when we get into sort of the human health concerns when we start looking at things like food insecurity and food deserts and obesity and how are all those things tied to industrial agriculture. Again, there's so many factors. Uh, it's really hard to, to parse them out. And again, you know, I, I don't do empirical work. So I'm really just relying on, on um, the, the studies that others have done in those areas, which, as I said, more and more are being done. But I haven't seen, I, I've definitely seen arguments on both sides. One thing that strikes me uh, as quite traditional and not at all transgressive uh, about people wanting to consume locally if if their preference is for that sort of thing, uh, is that this is the, what could be more traditional than voting with your dollars? Saying, 
look, I, I want to put my resources into things I think are good and therefore not support things that I think are not good or bad. And in that way, it seems like although the, the formal rules might tell you, well, I can't have a chicken in my backyard and my neighbor can't grow vegetables in her front yard and maybe sell me what she doesn't need for herself, even though the formal laws might tell us not to do that and that presents some issues, the basic idea of, hey, we're gonna we're trying to support what we think is best by doing it. And and so that our resources and other people like us flow into the things that we think are good and therefore get supported and therefore happen more. Mm-hmm. That seems that seems very traditional to me. Yeah, I think that's right. And I think that goes back to what we were talking about with the norms not always lining up um, so well with the law. And, uh, and I think the problem is when people are trying to do these things and then they're bumping up against their, their local code enforcement officers who are saying you can't. And so uh, they're saying, well, you know, Joe, as you're saying, this is sort of traditional. We want to support our community. We view this as, as building, you know, social capital, uh, enhancing our community by doing these things. Why is the law telling us we can't? And what can we do to change that? And I think that's the conversations that, that is starting to happen in a lot of these communities where the, yeah, the but, norms I mean, you, have shifted. You know what else is traditional, though? Uh, dusty streets filled with animal dung, uh, <laughs> roosters crowing in the morning, the smell of chicken poop wafting over from your neighbor's fence, uh, your neighbor's goats straying onto your property. I mean, this is very traditional because this is the uh, agrarian nature of our society when it was founded. And I thought that the whole idea of zoning was to say, uh, let's improve the quality of life, especially in cities, uh, and make sure that these uses, which experience has taught us, can lead to lower qualities of life. Make sure that those uses happen, you know, outside of the city or in special places. Let's not have a landfill next to a residential neighborhood, and let's uh, make sure that uh, if you have a, a livery stable, you know, uh, mm-hmm. um, with a bunch of like horses and maybe some cows and the random goat or two, that these things are uh, um, either you know rare in the city or not in the city at all. Uh, so yeah, no, that's yeah. exactly right. So so. I should make clear the underlying, the reason that we have a lot of these laws, you know, I'm, I'm saying that they're antiquated, um, but a lot of them do stem from the, you know, the famous 1926 Village of Euclid uh, Supreme Court case, which basically said zoning is constitutional. And, you know, the whole uh, idea behind zoning and behind this sort of traditional form of Euclidean zoning that we get from that Village of Euclid case was, just as Christian's saying, is to separate uses that are viewed as incompatible from one another. So, uh, you know, cities were saying we need zoning because we don't want the agricultural use right next to the residential use. We want to protect the the sanctity of the single family home and of yeah, exactly. Nice residential so, communities. so what's wrong with that? What's wrong with that? Well, I, I, I don't know that anything's wrong with it per se, other than I, I would say that our norms are starting to shift. We're seeing a lot of communities start to move away from that traditional version of Euclidean zoning, because to be honest, Euclidean zoning is what resulted in sprawl, right? It, it's a big reason that we have uh, you know, our, our residences in one area, and then we have to drive 20 minutes to get to the, the commercial uses and 20 minutes the other way to get to the civic uses. And so a lot of communities, especially those that are interested in sort of uh, smart growth or more progressive ideas of, of, of um, development, are moving away from those traditional segregated zones and moving more toward incorporating mixed-use zoning, so allowing commercial and residential uses to be on the same block or in the same building. Um, right. We're also and, saying, uh-huh. Go ahead. Yeah, no, I was just going to say that um, uh, that that in truth, of course, I'm I'm with you. I mean, about <laughs> the harms of uh, over planning. I mean, the, the one that land use profs always point to is uh, the example of Brasilia, right? This right. heavily planned 
you know, dead on arrival city. I hate to say that. I, I don't want to offend all of our listeners in Brasilia. Uh, I'm sure it's a Where's wonderful Brasilia? place. I've never, I've never heard of this place. Never been there. I've never been there. Where is it supposed I'm just, to be? I'm just, uh, you know, I'm just, I'm just talking. I don't know what I'm talking about. But, Brazil, but what I've read is that it is, it's the capital of Brazil, right? Right, Sarah? Right. And it's, it's not a, it's not a city for people. It's people feel very like it's very out of scale. It's these huge, wide boulevards and, and civic spaces separated in very um, interesting, visually interesting ways. It looks very futuristic, but it's not a place where people feel comfortable living. So super heavily planned, mm-hmm. right? And, and and at a time when planning was ascendant, and um, uh, we could, you know, by, by careful planning, we could eliminate the chaos that is created by many, many small choices, which add up to, you know, I don't know, gas stations next to residential houses and stuff. Mm-hmm. And what, what emerged was this, as you say, this, this heavily planned city, uh, w- you know, extremely well-planned city that, that didn't actually meet people's needs, um, right. partly because of our lack of foresight. Definitely. And I, I think a lot of people are starting to see that, you know, we're seeing a move um, after years of expansion toward the suburbs. We're starting to see a move of people back into city centers. And a lot of this is because of the renewed interest in walkability. And people want to be close to, um, you know, they want to be able to pop down to the corner market to buy a tomato for dinner or, you know, around the corner to the bookstore to pick up a book. And and they don't want to have to get in their car and drive to the superstore. And again, th- that's that's a that's a, a very um that's a norm that hasn't changed everywhere and that that is starting to change in some places and not others. So I think it's very regionally specific or general. Yeah, no, it's it's a clear shift and you know, the data show like young people are less interested in driving cars right. than they ever were before. And so uh, I think it's a it's a shift you're seeing everywhere, but in some places faster than faster than others. From, uh, from what I've read, um, so let's say I'm with you there that that um, uh, standard Euclidean zoning um, produced a certain kind of suburban dream which people don't want to pursue anymore, and now we're trying to move to something different. And one of the ways we're trying to move to something different is by changing our zoning systems to allow for mixed uses and, and to change our ideas about what uses are compatible. And Um, we're also seeing a rise in this idea of uh, transect zoning or form based codes where we're not even cities aren't even controlling uses anymore. They're really just looking at the form of structures and where they think we need more density and where we need less density and, and having much less concern for most uses. Some, you know, heavy industrial uses are still sort of regulated, but um, that's another sort of transition that we're seeing in in planning. Yeah, and so, but that's that really is the question, right? I mean, it, are the is the old learning that gave rise to Euclidean zoning? I love using that word Euclidean. You know, <laughs> former, former mathematician. Right. So, non Euclidean zoning is the most interesting. Of ah, course. yeah. Um, uh, but is that old learning no good anymore? I mean, the whole idea was that we were. Uh, by allowing people to do kind of whatever the heck they wanted and put whatever business they wanted wherever they wanted and whatever kind of uh, residential building wherever they wanted, uh, that we were getting lots of incompatible uses and, and approaching nuisances. You know, right. uh, you're, and um, and even if it wasn't a nuisance, it wasn't desirable. And so we needed some kind of way to manage this collectively because the market didn't didn't seem to be up to the task. Do you think what's happened? What's changed is that. Are community norms stronger? Do people have a more intuitive idea about compatible uses? Or are they better able to bargain? Or or do we just have better uh, legal technology these days? Like, you know, the, the new forms of, of, of non-zoning that you're talking about. Or do those solve the problem? Like, 
and just trying to think about the question of backyard chickens. If all my neighbors had backyard chickens and, you know, ideally kept without roosters, I guess it wouldn't be loud and it wouldn't smell, but someone's not going to keep up with that. Right. And, mm-hmm. and someone's going to get a rooster and, and then someone else wants a goat and someone else wants this. And all of a sudden we've got this, you know, I'm living in the middle of a farm area, right. which may be great for some people, but maybe that's not what you wanted when you moved into the heart of the city. Right. And I, so I guess we could we could use Tibu's hypothesis where the people who don't want to live amongst all these farm animals would, would move somewhere else, right? They'd say, well, this is no longer the place for me. Let me leave. And, and I think, you know, you raised an, interest, an interesting point about nuisance law um, because one of the reasons we developed zoning was because we were finding that nuisance law wasn't sufficient to deal with all of these concerns. And I think one... When we think about this transition, let's say we are to deregulate and allow people to use their property in uh, more ways for urban agricultural purposes. Well, then we could fall back on nuisance again and say, well, and I've seen this in some of the jurisdictions that are passing ordinances allowing urban ag. They're saying you can use your prop, you know, you can have chickens to the extent they don't cause a nuisance. But but that's just giving up, right? right. That's that's giving up on planning. (laughs) Right. So we're falling back and saying, and if your neighbors, you know, if if they don't like it, they can bring a lawsuit. And again, it's post talk and it's, you know, it's not as good for many reasons. It's not giving up if if what you say is you can – here are some – there's still some things that are not okay. There are some things that that everyone knows are okay. And then there's a middle case where the answer to the question, is it okay, is it depends. Mm -hmm. And so I would say you would want to supplement – your standard, you can have chickens as long as they're not a nuisance, that if you're really being smart about it, you would subst- you would, you would add to your system a, another layer of dispute resolution that lets people resolve disputes faster and more cheaply. So, for example, set up, you know, neighbor- give neighborhood associations, uh, uh, give people an incentive to form one if there isn't one already, and give the neighborhood association um, the right to a non-binding arbitration about whether it's a nuisance. That way, people who live in that community can get a quick read from other people in their community about are they out of whack on what they're doing compared to what other people are doing. I mean, maybe they just lack information about what what's acceptable given all the facts and circumstances. Sarah, in your experience, are neighborhood associations these types of things, are they just chock full of reasonable level-headed people? (laughs) Oh, what a good question. No, you know, it is funny. I mean, this raises the question, who has the time to participate in their neighborhood association, right? Exactly, right. Um, Which, you know, this is a question throughout Landy's, who has the time to be on, you know, architectural review boards and these things. But um, no, I I mean, so Joe, I think one thing that we are seeing some cities do in, in terms of that sort of intermediate level is not deregulating completely, but instead instituting some sort of permitting process. So saying you can have up to four chickens if you get uh, you know, um, a conditional use permit from the city or something like this, which ostensibly should, that if you comply with the requirements to get the permit, that should eliminate the risk of a, of a nuisance. Um, is and, is know, that what we've come to, Sarah? Is I, that well, what we've I, come I, to? We're, we're, right, we're applying for chicken permits? <laughs> As a society, <laughs> millions of years of evolution and development, and now we're applying for chicken permits. Christian, Christian is very cantankerous today. I, I don't understand this. I'm just trying to be goofy. <laughs> you know, whatever. Whatever. Speaking of homeowners associations, I guess the other thing that I've been wondering in this conversation is if, if some zoning uh, approaches become less uh, rigid or less... Uh, absolutist and exclusion excluding of 
more agricultural related, more food production related things. It seems like that's things are moving in one direction that way. In another direction, things are moving or another pressure is uh, the housing developments that are created with these very specific homeowners associations uh, with the rules that they can promulgate, uh, no pet rules uh, for for, uh, communities uh, aimed at older folk, no children rules. It's all sorts of rules. Um, what colors your house can be with shutters or not, all this stuff, right? People who have a real taste for a much more, what I would think of as an intrusive form of regulation, people who have a taste for that kind of intrusion on one another can find that, they can meet that preference in the marketplace. They can go move to a neighborhood that approaches things that way. So it seems like, it's good to have variability where there are some neighborhoods that are not as intrusively regulated, some that are. Let people find the things they're looking for by having more varied options. Definitely. Thus, thus spoke Adam Smith. <laughs> <laughs> I am the antitrust teacher at the table. <laughs> but um, but no, that you know, I mentioned Tibu. That that would be his argument too. That that it's good that different communities or different cities. I mean, he's focusing more on local governments than than common interest communities, but. That by providing a lot of different goods and services, that allows people to find the one that suits their needs. Um, but you're exactly right. I mean, more and more people, I, I don't have the statistic in front of me, but I think it's something like a fifth of the people or something live in, in the U.S., live in common interest communities, in communities that are governed by these conditions um, and restrictions uh, and covenants, you know, the, the sort of homeowners associations that say you have to mow your lawn or you can't have a dog. Um, and so, right, so some people would say, well, let, the, let those covenants be more restrictive and let the land use ordinances be more relaxed. Uh, because generally, if the two bump up against each other, the more restrictive controls. This is kind of the theory of the city of Houston, Texas, mm-hmm. right. uh, which, which is- famously does not have zoning, makes extensive use of covenants, uh, although it's a little bit of a trope because they do have, pretty, they have, they do have a lot of land use regulation, right. just not traditional zoning. Um, but I think, you know, a reliance on covenants is certainly there. Mm-hmm. Uh, uh, the thing is that it's expensive. Covenants are expensive. It, um, uh, they're expensive to kind of administer. They, uh, lead to unexpected results and, and, um, uh, there's a lot of pushback, um, when people turn themselves over to kind of private regulators. And, uh, I don't know if we want to get into all this right now, because I've got a couple <laughs> other, I've got a couple other topics I wanted to explore sure. with Sarah. Uh, and, and so, so one of them is your latest work, uh, which I don't think is out yet on the virtues of law breaking, right? You think more, you think more people should break the law. <laughs> uh, and number two, um, you think we should all burn our lawns, right? That's a very, that's a very succinct way of, uh, of, of, um, uh, describing my scholarship. I like it. Yes. I'm going to start I, using that. <laughs> I think we need to get to both of these. So which okay. one do you want to take first? Which one? I'll, I'll take them in any order. Are you asking me? Yeah, I'm asking you. Oh, yeah. no, y- y'all are in charge here. Whatever you feel oh. like talking about. Do, you, do, do they say y'all up in Maine? Uh, they laugh when I do. <laughs> <laughs> so they love it. Yes. They love it up there. Yeah. Okay. Up there, they would say you're in charge. Joe, which one do you want to talk about first? Uh, the virtues of, of criminals or um, the virtues why we of criminals? I do not have a gas can, so I can't burn my lawn. So I'm not going to learn as much from that. Well, we are going to talk about that though. About burning my lawn? Oh yeah. Oh yeah. Not okay. yours in particular, but oh, well, we might as well talk all, about mine. I, I think have all one. of them. All of them. We're going to burn okay. all of them, um, and and then turn them into, I guess, 
your proposal, I, I'm guessing, I'm just kind of channeling here, is to create rock gardens with old bottle caps. Uh, yeah, that, right? that sounds great. Okay. Yeah. Okay. All right. Uh, well, we'll explore that. But first, let's talk about the virtues of law breaking. So, you know, we've been talking about um, your view and, uh, and and the view of, of a lot of uh, of both reformers, scholars, and and just uh, community activists and and all sorts of people that uh, restrictive the kind of restrictive zoning we we have now is increasingly outdated, and we need to look for new forms of doing this. And this would allow things like chickens and agriculture and uh, community gardens and uh, mixed use and all of this, but um, that the dream of a of a code that can deliver all that and not lead to some of the harms that gave rise to zoning in the first instance um, hasn't totally emerged yet. There are a lot of there's a lot of experimentation out there, and one form of experimentation is, I guess, I take it uh, uh, for individuals who wish that things would be different just to take the law into their own hands and start just planting gardens on property that doesn't belong to them or having chickens when the law says that you can't. Um, uh, you're interested in this, right, Sarah? Not not maybe in breaking the law, but in writing about it at least. Yeah, right? definitely. I, I think it's very interesting, this idea, and I, I sort of talk about it as transgression or transgressive behavior, um, where sometimes it, it, it violates laws and norms. Sometimes it's supported by norms, but goes against the law. Um, but we're seeing more and more of this, of people just, as you said, sort of taking it into their own hands and, and saying, look, I think this is going to improve my community. It's going to improve my life and my health. And so I'm going to do it. Um, and, often- and so what's a, what's a specific example of that? What's, um, uh- so, so, you know, you mentioned seeing people planting uh, gardens, you know, sort of large scale, sometimes community gardens on property that they don't own. Um, this is happening in a lot of the shrinking cities where we've got, you know, we had a bunch of foreclosures and then abandoned homes, and then sometimes the cities go in and Specifically like, like Detroit, sure, Detroit, Michigan, sure. Detroit, one, right? Cleveland. Um, and, you know, we're even seeing some of this in, in, in parts of New York, uh, New York City, even Long Island City. I know there's a big um, farm happening on land that's owned by a railroad. You know, there, so there's a lot of these actions being taken where people see underused space and they say, hey, I have a use for that land that would make it look better, that would actually make it productive, it's just sitting here vacant. Maybe the city owns it. Maybe a bank owns it. Maybe some homeowner who's left town owns it. And I'm going to make it nice. Right now, it's it's blighted. You know, it's it's just got weeds and trash. And why don't we clean it up and grow fruits and vegetables and um, bring in community members to work on these things? And so that's but one that, example. But your story then is the way you just described it is the people are not doing it for the sake of its illegality. They're doing it in spite of its illegality. So there's a good thing they want to pursue, the fruits, the vegetables, the non-blightness. But uh, in their heart of hearts, wouldn't they wish that it were legal? Well, sometimes. That's what, I, that's what I'm asking. To fit. I mean, I don't hear, the, I don't hear someone doing um, the bad for the bad's sake. Right. So, so this is, so you, you know, you can look back in literature and St. Augustine talks about being a kid and, you know, he knows he has this terrible moment in his life where he's stealing the pears and he's not stealing them because he wants to eat them or because they're good. He's just stealing them for the sake of stealing. He knows it's wrong. Mm-hmm. And, and, that, and he's like, oh, that was a terrible moment. I was really being bad. <laughs> right. So w- this isn't like that, is it? So I, uh, that example, probably not. Um, I would say there's sort of two things. So, so. On the one hand, some of these people, maybe they wouldn't mind if it were legal, but it would be too expensive to go through the process of actually leasing this land or getting a permit. So they're saying, well, we can't do that, but we want to do this anyway. But the other side, something else I write about in that paper. So this is a, it's a symposium piece I wrote for the Wisconsin Law Review. And um, I also talk in there about pop-up uh, restaurants or pop-up dinners. 
And I would argue that some of those uh, do relish in the illegality of it because it adds an element of, of interest, you know, underground, um, sort of. The- and these, these are totally unpermitted, um, non-inspected, non-zoned restaurants, which are, you know, just pop up, as you say, for a few meals at a time and then go back underground. Is that right? Exactly. Right. And sometimes they're taking place in um, in stores after hours. Sometimes they're taking place in fields or parks. Uh, sometimes they're taking places, place in individuals' homes, um, but they're still often charging people to, to come and eat the food. Um, you, you know, mm-hmm. can I just interrupt for a sure. second? Because I have the, I have the article title for you. And Joe, Joe just gave me the inspiration for this. <laughs> yes, please. Okay. And it's one of those, you know, all law review, uh, articles have to have the colon in uh-huh. it. Um, so, so here it is. Grow a pear, colon, um, uh, uh, um, uh, Augustinian, um, um, what, what's, oh crap, I lost it. Augu- you had it though. You I were, had you were, you're hot grow, on the trail. Grow a pair, uh, um, uh, Augustinian illegality as land use virtue. Mm. And how are you spelling pear? P-E-A-R. Oh, of course. P-E-A-R. Yeah. Yeah. That's great. I like that. I'm so, quaking before the awesomeness of that title. Yeah, well, I, I'm that. That's free. You can use that. Thank you. That it's all the first hit's always free. Um, <laughs> so, so there is a certain joy in transgression that that and 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 you think that the the pop up restaurants are like indicative of that. I mean, if if they were if someone got a permit to have a pop up restaurant, it would take away from some of its mystery, right? I mean, you know. That's questionable. I think it's questionable. So to what extent does the public know? You know, when you go to a pop-up restaurant, do you know if these people have permits or not? Do you know if they have a catering license? Probably not. Um, but I think there's some air to the uh, sort of underground nature of it that makes it a t- enticing or appealing. Um, and I, I think that some people, uh, you know, do like the idea of, of the civil disobedience or, or the sort of, uh, you know, screwing city hall or something that's involved in some of these actions uh that so let, want to participate yeah so let's talk about just the virtue of it because sure. I, I think if you know someone seeing this for the first time uh and reading one of these articles might say yeah this stuff sounds kind of cool but how is this different than any other area uh yeah, i'm playing a lot of devil's advocate today you really are but that, that's okay that's okay because I, I i um i think i mostly agree with sarah on this although i think it's it's somewhat difficult. So how is this different than any other area in which people say, boy, society is not as good as it could be. I'm going to be a law unto myself. You know, maybe, maybe I think that there's just not enough violence in society. And I, you know, there's just not enough uh, murder and mayhem. Uh, I'm going to take this on into my own hands and just add a little bit. And uh, there's no virtue in that. So the virtue must be in the underlying thing that is done, right? Or is it in changing law to a better state and there's some kind of external measure of whether uh, one set of laws is better than another set of laws? And so uh, so what I'm asking really is, uh, what is it about the illegality of it? Is it just its effectiveness at, at positive social change? Is it... Um, what is it? Yeah, I mean, so I guess I should be clear. I don't necessarily come out saying that there is necessarily a benefit or a strong benefit to the illegality. I think that to some extent, um, it, it certainly acts as a catalyst for change. And and I think this might be specific to property law as well. So there's this um, book that's out recently called Property Outlaws uh, by um, Eduardo Penalver and Sonia Katyal. And in this book, they talk about sort of this idea of, of property outlaws specifically, that property law has a tendency to get stuck in certain patterns. 
and um, it has to be shocked. And so outlaws have played this role. And you know, if we think about property law, when we think about things like adverse possession, right? The ability basically of, of a squatter to gain a new title to a piece of property. Yeah, a lot uh, of students are surprised about this when they definitely. hear it for the first time. I teach property too, and you know, you tell them that you know, someone is an illegal uh, trespasser right up until the minute when they are granted title. Mm-hmm. And that's surprising to people that if you, if you break the law flagrantly enough, long enough, openly enough, eventually you're rewarded with someone else's property. Right. And I think part of this also goes to the idea, the sort of law and economics views that come up a lot in property literature and, and scholarship, which is this idea of efficient use of land. And on the whole, the law has tended to reward um, more efficient uses of land. And so I do think there's something special about property here. And I say that also not knowing that much about all the other areas of law, right? I have well, let me give you another example. And I, I you know, um, I've saw um, a, a little portion of a preview of, um, of Eduardo and, and Sonia's books, so, but I have not read the whole thing. And so I don't know if this is in there, but, um, uh, you know, certainly Napster is an example of, of, one of these, um, one of these uh, intervention. You know, uh, I'm trying, saying this wrong, but uh, a bunch of law breaking that leads to positive social change. Mm-hmm. So, illegal file sharing was decimating the decimating is the wrong word, but destroying the music industry. And it's it. I, I, one wonders, and I don't know um, whether this is the case, but uh, whether they would have cut a deal with Steve Jobs and gotten music on the iTunes Music Store, and then from there a bunch of other innovations like Spotify and, you know, whether these are good things or not, they, they certainly are changes in the way that music is produced and, and distributed. Would these have happened without the pressure of a bunch of people voting illegally with their, uh, with their mouse clicks? Mm. Um, so that, that's, you know, that's certainly, you know, one example where uh, outside of real property, at least where it looks like there's been some, the market is kind of, for, the, the illegal market, the black market is kind of forced changes in market structure that might not have occurred if everybody were, uh, were law followers. Yeah. Maybe speed, maybe speed limits are kind of the same way. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and I don't know, um, you know, there probably wouldn't be a lot of support for a much, much lower speed limit. There's certainly a lot of resistance to the speed limit, a lot of uh, violations of it, but I don't know if that's, you know, I don't know if that's in the same category or not, but yeah. um, I don't know. What do you think? Me or Joe? Yeah, either one of you. Joe, do you have any thoughts? I want to hear from Sarah. <laughs> um, yeah, no, I, I think that idea of, of it acting as a catalyst is a very powerful one. And I, I would say maybe that's one of the most powerful um, sort of results of the illegal behavior in and of itself. But I think the reason that we see it, which is maybe what's more interesting to me, is, you know, we we generally think like, oh, we don't break the law, right? The law is here. It's a constraint on our behavior and we're not going to act in violation of it. But especially in these sort of property related issues, I think that a lot of people look around, you know, property is so important to us because it affects our community so much. It affects our experience of our community and the way that the property in our community is used um, really does have an immediate impact on us. And so if they look around and see blighted property or vacant property, and maybe the city doesn't have any money, uh, the city's not doing anything about it. And they say, look, this is easy. Here's an easy way that we can take care of this. We're just going to do something even though we're not allowed. So this isn't really related to urban agriculture, but one of my favorite examples is um, there were some folks, I think it was uh, I think it was Philadelphia, but I'm not sure on that. And they, said, they basically said, um, we need bike lanes. They had been talking to the city about getting bike lanes, but it was going to cost you know thousands of dollars and it was going to take two years to get this approval and this and that. 
And so one night they just went out with some paint and stencils and stenciled bike lanes along the roads. Um, again, totally illegal. <laughs> you need, you'd probably need traffic studies and to figure out where it's going to interfere with traffic and not. But they did this and then people started using the bike lanes. And eventually the city came and, you know, painted bike lanes in the same place. Um, but these people were able to do it in one night for a couple hundred bucks. And so these are seen as sort of, you know, this idea of guerrilla urbanism or user-generated urbanism. People just going out and improving their cities, putting things in because they're frustrated with the bureaucracy. They're frustrated with the planning processes. Or maybe they think it's too expensive. Or maybe they think that the, the local governments won't, won't be responsive or or won't do what needs to be done. So how how do we know whether that's a good thing? I mean, I'm I'm yeah. you know I bike to work every day. I'm certainly sympathetic to uh, providing for more bike lanes. I think there are lots of good reasons for for doing that. Um, but but what if a, a community already had bike lanes and you had a group of frustrated drivers who hated bikes for whatever reason and then went out one night and painted over all the bike lanes and added another lane of traffic? Exactly. So I think when these things comport with our views of what's good and proper, we're in support of them. And if they don't, we think they're ridiculous or, or illegal, and we think these people should be prosecuted. So that's but, a great point. And it seems to me that the part of what's going on here are, is the notion that things that survive, survive in part because they are working well for the people who need to use and be in that environment. That, I mean, in a way, what the people who go out and make the bike lanes or the people in Christian's uh, scenario where they take away the bike lanes, Mm -hmm. in a way, what they're saying is, look, I get that that there are these things called laws. I understand that. (laughs) And most of the time, I'm totally okay with them. Most of the time, I follow most of the laws. I think everyone actually could say that Mm -hmm. and be right. Um, most of the time I follow most of the laws, but look, the laws are here for me. I'm not here for them. So when the law stops serving me, I need to make, I need to help people see that, that they're not serving them either. And so let's make a change and we make the change. Now, what happens? Well, sometimes the person who does that is a freaking maniac and the thing they want to do is a totally bad idea. And I can tell because everyone rejected it and they're now sitting in jail alternatively what they come up with is a really great idea people warm to it immediately everyone says oh my gosh we should have been doing that for a long time let's keep doing that and then there are in between cases cases that are sort of harder to to judge but but the the first point the person saying look the laws are here to serve us and make our life better we're not here to serve the law and make the laws life better mm-hmm. i think that's the key step I think what's great about what you said is that I, I think it touches on what is uh, a possible virtue and a way to understand civil disobedience and lawbreaking in this area. And that is it plays an important agenda setting role. So when you go out and you paint a bunch of bike lanes illegally, um, it, we don't necessarily applaud it because of the fact that there are now bike lanes there and you did something good. It's that you brought this issue to the public's attention and now... Uh, if we really think you're a, you know, that that's a bad thing. If we are, a, you know, a car city and we hate bikes and and the, you know, then, uh, then you know they will be painted over the next day or the next week. But it, but at least we will be debating it, right? Mm-hmm. Instead of having it die in various committees and and kind of fly under the public uh, radar. Whereas my, uh, um, you know, in, in a city I guess like Portland, um, are you issued a bike if you live in Portland? <laughs> Is that practice? At least you, in you, really? You mean Portland, Oregon, Christian, not Portland, Maine. Uh, Is there a difference? 
No. <laughs> yeah, I don't. I didn't think there was much of a difference. I, in fact, I thought that's why they're called the by the same name. It's basically the same city, I think. Anyway, uh, more snow in, in Portland, Maine. Right. Snow versus rain. Yeah. Um. Uh. But in a city like that, if if you had a bunch of cantankerous uh, car mavens go out and paint over all the bike lanes, uh, then again, it would be a big issue. But this time, I think the public would come down on the side of throwing the book at the people who erased all the bike lanes, and it would just reinforce the norm that they want. And so the most important exactly. thing that lawbreakers do in this, you know, principled lawbreakers, I guess, is to say, you know, public, we need to have a discussion about this thing. Yeah. Um, and, and here I'm changing the status quo, and if you want to change it back or further change it, let's talk about this now because you have to do something about me and what I've done. Yeah, and I think, you know, you both are bringing up this point of enforcement and norms, and I think that's really a, a key point to understand here, is that generally, um, behaviors that follow norms, even if the behaviors are technically illegal, don't trigger enforcement, don't trigger legal enforcement. Um, and that, so there, uh, Mark Edwards wrote this paper called Acceptable Deviance, and he talks about this, where if, if, our, if our norms say that's okay, we're not going to seek legal enforcement. And so this goes to the idea of, right, we'll probably throw the book at the people who paint over the bike lanes in Portland because the norm is we like bikes and we like bike lanes. Um, so no matter which, you know, even though the behavior is illegal both ways, we might be more accepting of that behavior that comports with our norms. And we're kind of dancing around a very old legal topic that, um, that I think people who haven't been through law school, maybe, maybe some know, but people who haven't been through law school may not have thought about it, And that there's a huge difference between the law that's on the books and the law as it works in life, you know, the law in action, as they mm-hmm. say. So it's, um, it, it, we're really driving at the question of what is law. Um, uh, and a lot of people would say the law is what happens, right? It's how um, social enforcement and uh, official communications unfold in, in, in life. It's not the, the law on, uh, in code books, although that's a source, right? That's a source for these, uh, for the doing of law. Yeah. Uh, and um, so you're right. I mean, uh, but it's not the only source and maybe even the most important source. I mean, prosecutorial discretion that is guided by things which are not always written down in, in code books. Oh, and I think another, I mean, I think we also shouldn't ignore the fact that a lot of these transgressive, at least in the context of urban agricultural behaviors, are often being led by, you know, wealthy white people who probably don't face as much risk of enforcement due to those sort of discretionary issues. And this goes back to a deeper issue um, that, that I think is important to mention, is when we talk about why we have these bans on, on backyard chickens in our neighborhoods and things like this. Certainly, it's a, a big part of it is Euclidean zoning, but a big part of Euclidean zoning is exclusion, right? The idea is to exclude people from our communities that we think are undesirable or that we don't want in our communities. Um, at least that was sort of this, this sort of, you know, if we look back on why many of these laws were passed, that's part of it. And I would argue that a lot of the anti-agriculture ordinances um, are not only to sort of separate us from nuisance uses, but are to keep out the people who were likely to have chickens and and gardens in their neighborhoods, which for a long time were people, you know, were immigrants or poor individuals. Yeah, and that's a great point. I mean, you look at, so the Euclid itself was written by Justice Sutherland, uh, who was no progressive? Mm-hmm. I mean, he was he was one of the guys uh, back in the um, uh, the progressive era uh, on the Supreme Court striking down child labor laws and uh, minimum uh, wages and and all kinds of progressive legislation as interfering with the free market. You know, he had a almost uh, like like many um, in that era had an almost religious belief in the 
in the free market and the Constitution's protection of the free market. Uh, and yet he wrote the opinion which upheld one of the most intrusive forms of regulation in an everyday life, the, 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 regulation, the zoning regulations, which tell you exactly what you can and cannot do on land that you own. And it's really quite remarkable. I mean, it's, and he writes this opinion, which talks about how uh, law evolves over time to meet new challenges. And so even though the words of the Constitution don't change their application, it's a very kind of progressive living constitutional opinion, totally at odds with uh, some of his other work. Um, and, and, and in that opinion, if you try to figure out, well, why is that? Why, why, is, why is he so different on this kind of regulation, which looks a lot more intrusive than telling people they don't have the freedom to work 200 hours a week in a, in a bakery? Um, and, and I think what you find is that he says uh, um, he's all about protecting, you know, um, middle class. residential areas. Yeah, yeah exactly. Upper from middle class homeowners. Yeah. From what he calls like the parasites of apartment dwellers. Exactly. And he has these paragraphs talking about apartment buildings as, as bringing in all kinds of undesirable elements and behaviors and activities. And that uh, this is just a way to stop that from happening, right? Yeah. Um, to keep the pig out of the parlor, as they say. Um, cool. <laughs> you agree with that, I take it? Yeah. Oh, definitely. Right. Yeah. Uh, well, because mm-hmm. well, this podcast is called oral argument so we're gonna gonna need some kind of (laughs) art you know (laughs) but you know i do wonder what the upshot of that of that is i mean i'm i'm i've taught property a few times i haven't taught it recently Uh, i had learned some of that history in in law school as a law student and then in order to teach property law better uh, as a professor so so it's true that that some things that we can now explain or justify in uh, terms that don't seem as uh, harsh or condemnatory, uh, things that uh, terms that don't require us to think, oh, I'm taking delight in excluding recent immigrants from my neighborhood, or I'm taking delight in uh, excluding poor people from my neighborhood, right? No, I don't think most people would feel comfortable um, viewing themselves that way or these legal systems that they think are good in that way. Um, well, okay, and we don't view them that way, but so what's the upshot of the fact that that this idea has this bad history. Um, and I'm, and I ask not because I have an answer, I, but, but because I just wonder that sometimes there, there are a lot of great ideas that have horrible origins and horrible histories. And yet we, we discover as they persist, I mean, some of this is just inertia. We discover things as they persist. They, they can be explained by or justified by reasons that, that aren't so awful. Right. Um, and so, you know, it's the old, well, even a broken watch is right twice a day. I mean, just, be- <laughs> just, because it's a, just because it has a bad origin doesn't necessarily mean it's an idea you have to reject. So, yeah, you know, I, it, I mean, and I would say now, especially with these, the, the sort of old anti-agriculture, anti-urban agriculture ordinances, I mean, there is no longer an exclusionary justification anyway, right? Because now... Who wants to have, you know, think of the people you know who have backyard chickens. Yeah, we're back to hipster law. Yeah, exactly. That this is, yeah, and let's all change our middle name to Williamsburg and et cetera, et cetera. <laughs> so, uh, right. So I think that those sort of um, old ordinance or old justifications kind of fall away. Uh, but I do think we still have to be aware of, of who feels comfortable undertaking these transgressive behaviors and why. Um, and, and thinking about those issues is still important, I think. Last topic. Are you ready? Yeah. All right. I, I, I have a story to tell. 
And um, this this is a shout out to all of my students. I think class of 2010, section Y. I think the first. This is the first uh, class I taught at um, at Georgia. Um, and I was I was still a young man then, Sarah. <laughs> I was I was still uh, you know I'm I, I was not um, you know now I can't remember anything and now I'm kind of doddering. Uh, I was not then. I was the beard uh, was uh, was fully brown. It, it actually was as opposed to now where it's snow white. Well, yeah, I, I, I guess that's right. And um, I was a spring chicken. Um, and, and so that, that makes this all the more puzzling. But apparently, over the course of the year, I told the students on several occasions, not having any memory that I had told them even once, uh, that, we were a, that somehow we had become a nation of grass farmers. So much so that this was a joke among the students. I'm the absent-minded professor saying the same thing probably 10 times over the course of the semester. So they got the feeling that you thought you were saying it for the first time. Yes. Even though it was the eighth or ninth time. That's right. Wow. That's <laughs> rough. And, and they, were, um, they were under the correct impression. I did think it was the first time. <laughs> they were right about you. You did yeah, not so remember. Now, so now I'm careful not to say it at all. For well, fear but at that least I've... you were making a valid point, right? Well, that's the... Lawns are the largest irrigated crop in the U.S. So there yeah, you so go. Why do we grow this stuff? Why, why, why do we grow it? Well, I, my research would suggest that we grow it because of, uh, there's an extremely entrenched norm um, in support of lawns. Uh, this is sort of goes part and parcel with our idea of the sort of the white picket fence and the house with the lawn where your kids and your dog can play. And, um, and when people violate that norm, when, you know, in, if you're in a community that has a strong lawn norm and you have you know, cacti and bottle caps or whatever you were talking about earlier, you know, some sort of zero escape <laughs> land, yeah. um, you will get dirty looks from your neighbors and they will try to enforce those norms via social sanction and all of that. Uh, so I think that's the most uh, obvious explanation, but there's also a legal explanation. In many communities, lo- lawns are effectively required by the law. And that's because we have um, weed ordinances. These are the same ordinances. The, the reason that you often can't have a vegetable garden in your front lawn is because these weed ordinances in mer- many communities limit the height and the type of plantings that you can have in front of your house. Now, uh, you're not talking about laws against outdoor marijuana cultivation, <laughs> No, different kinds of weeds. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> the more traditional. Okay. Uh, uh, yeah, this is a confusing podcast because we're saying weed and grass, yeah. and it's like they both they both mean marijuana, but they also both mean something else. Right. But both of those are totally legal. Are we Maine. saying we support marijuana for recreational use? Well, I mean, this is, Sarah's up in Maine. This is the idea that marijuana could be banned and is totally foreign to her. Okay, right? I mean they. Because we're still in Georgia, they, don't right. they? In Portland, yeah, yeah. don't they grow it on every rooftop we, up there? We did. We recently legalized pot here in uh, in Portland, Maine. So. You know, so yeah, well, so, there you yeah. go. So anyway, we, you were so saying, let the bong bubble away. <laughs> no, but uh, but no, I, I mean, right. So so we've also got these laws that effectively tell people you can't have anything but grass in your front yards. And then going back to the common interest communities, the the covenants. Um, many communities that have covenants say you have to have a lawn and you have to have it mowed, um, and often you have to have it mowed by someone who you hire. Uh, th- th- down there in Georgia, the Country Club of the South, I remember that used to be one of their covenants, or at least that was word on the street, that you couldn't mow your own lawn. You had to hire someone to do it. Yeah, so, the, I mean, basically no, hippies, no yeah. hippies in your, your lawn can't be a hippie either. Right. It's got to be cleanly, clean, clean cut, uh, closely cropped. Um, wow. And Well, is it, 
you know, so one reason, I think uh, some people hearing this, and because I've talked with people about this kind of thing before, are going to say, well, one virtue of a lawn is the kids need a place to play. Right. I mean, and that's the reason to have grass. Uh, people may go on and admit kind of a... Um, uh, a fascination with English style lawns and just, you know, that they grew up with it. They like the look of it. Um, it makes the place look neater, you know, et cetera, et cetera. But uh, the most substantive reason that people often give is that kids need a place to kick a ball around mm-hmm. and uh, to run around on. And um, uh, so uh, what do you think about that? No. And I think that, again, that goes to sort of the social capital um, issue. And I think that's completely valid. Uh, but I would also argue if we What have- do you mean by social capital? Oh, like building community, right? Lawns can build communities. If no one had lawns and everyone's kids just had to play inside their homes, they wouldn't be able to interact with one another. Um, they wouldn't, you know, develop uh, the ability to to negotiate with their other neighbor friends and things like this. But that sounds wrong to me. Uh, um, okay. Because um, if, if no one had lawns uh, and grass was confined to parks, first of all, there'd be people would want to have parks. So that would uh, be my other point. Right? Yeah, okay. Well, I, I won't make it for you. No, no, no. You, you no that's it. exactly yeah. right. I, I would argue if we didn't have lawns that we should have more parks, that the city could, you know, dedicate more parkland, and that could increase social capital because then everyone has to go to that park to play instead of just in their own front lawn or just with their next-door neighbors. So, yeah, no, I, I think that's a, I think that's the sort of counter-argument um, to those who would say, but my kids need a place to play. And other people might then come back and say that, that your proposal is basically for the, uh, a statist solution where the state tells you, you shall not have a lawn, gather comrades at the people's park. Yeah. For thanks, all of your exercise thanks, needs. Yeah. <laughs> thanks. Thanks, Fidel. Welcome to Castro frickin park. <laughs> well, again, I, I mean, I don't think they can just, um, arbitrarily say no lawns. I think it would have to be based in their police powers or in their zoning powers, but I think there are really valid justifications for that. When we look at the harms um, that lawns cause from an environmental perspective as compared to the, uh, the social capital benefits that they provide, I would argue that in that balance, the city would clearly be justified in using their police powers to, um, to outlaw them. Oh, now, do you think that – because I was, I was just being a little bit goofy because I, I, I had thought um, that your proposal was it, you know, at least to allow people not to have them and to find ways to encourage people to explore alternatives to green – water, uh, you know, green, thirsty, pesticide-laden lawns um, and herbicide-laden lawns, to, to uh, that people should be free to explore alternatives to that, that we should help people explore alternatives to that. And as more people converted away from, you know, large open swaths of, of green grass to maybe more interesting and varied landscapes, that other people would then kind of hop on the bandwagon and over time the norm would change. Mm-hmm. Uh, but it, would you go further and would you ban lawns? I mean, you know, in the paper, I, I do address the sort of legal issue of could a government actually ban a lawn? I'm not saying we should or that any governments will. Um, but I do think that as, you know, as climate, cha- uh, climate change becomes more pressing, as we're needing more both adaptation and mitigation, um, and I don't, think, I don't think it should be off the table as something that governments, some local governments could at least consider in sort of addressing their water shortage issues um, and their, their, their planning issues, especially in some areas of the Southwest. Uh, you know, Las Vegas has already done this. They haven't retroactively banned existing lawns or told people they have to tear them up, but they have said no lawns on certain new developments um, and instead are requiring people to use native plants. And I think that's great. And, and again, I think that, that from a legal perspective, um, that's, that's solid. I, I really do in the paper make the argument that at least in some areas, 
uh, localities could go further and actually say you have to tear up your lawn. Now, why, would that be why not? Leave, why not? Leave, yeah, why not leave this to the market though? So why why not instead of telling people exactly what to plant and what not to plant? Uh, I think nobody would have a problem with well with a couple of different solutions. Like one is uh, charging. Uh, an increasing rate, a kind of a progressive weight for water usage so that, you know, water becomes extremely expensive as you get to the higher ends of, of usage or um, uh, even maybe rationing water if it got uh, pretty dire. Uh, and that, you know, once water becomes expensive, then you have to make a decision about how to use that scarce resource on your own land. And a pretty obvious candidate to reduce expenses there would be to eliminate, you know, large lawns. Definitely. And that sort of progressive block pricing has been put in place in some communities as well. And I think you're right. I think from a practical um, solution perspective, that's probably much more practical and much more politically palatable than a ban on lawns. And I'm going further. I'm saying maybe better. Uh, And I think you're probably right. What I'm interested in, though, or what what I was interested in investigating in that paper was sort of the extent of our police powers. How far could a local government go in the face of climate change when they're considering what are our options? Uh, I just wanted to sort of do that thought experiment. Yeah, and, and to that's that's fine. And yeah. to go to go the other way, though, I mean, um, uh, to kind of argue against myself in a way here, uh, um, rationing water only addresses one of the costs of lawns, right? So one of the costs of lawns is res- using an awful lot of scarce water resources to grow um, what is a you know, more or less useless crop, except to the extent it's being played on by kids and adults and other things. And and that doesn't happen for a lot of lawns. So it's a, it seems like a lot of waste. On the other hand, um, with lawns, there's also, you know, there's a reduction in biodiversity. There's a reduction in um, uh, native um, plant life and, and wildlife. There is increased, uh, oftentimes increased herbicide and pesticide use. And these costs aren't accounted for in, in, uh, in water rationing or progressive water pricing or block pricing. Right. And we also wind up with rich people with lawns and non-rich people without them. Um, but it, it, right. And I think that's one benefit to the extent that a city had a, a requirement that said you can no longer have a lawn and here are the options. You've got to replace it with something else. Then the city could also be furthering, you know, if they if they've put in place some sort of sustainability plan or sustainability goals, um, they could help further that by giving people different options uh, that they could have instead of the lawn. I got one more idea on this, though. Can I ask? Well, go I, ahead, yeah. I've got some. Yeah. So, one thing, one question I'm wondering about is um, on the climate change point. If if you grow grass on your property and you cut it with a human push, you know, human powered push mower. Mm-hmm. In other words, not a not something that uses a fossil fuel or even electricity, <laughs> just a push mower, and you don't use pesticide on it and uh, you've got a water pricing system like Christian described, which I think is an excellent idea. Water should get more expensive the more of it you use. Uh, doesn't grass, like any plant, sequester carbon? Yeah, so it would definitely, so right, so it would definitely be a better carbon sink than a parking lot in that place, for sure. Um, and I think you're right. And that's why in some uh, geographical locations in the country, it would make no sense to have a ban on lawns, especially if you're in a place where you don't have to or you or you don't use any sort of um, petroleum based, uh, you know, um, herbicides or, you know, um, those kind of chemicals on your lawn. And if you're using the push mower, right, then you do, then you aren't really contributing um, to the lawn harms. And in that case, the benefits might outweigh the harms. Okay, so and the so other issue, to- 
to establish a ban. Oh, okay. In those circumstances. Mm-hmm. So the other thing I'm wondering about is, or, or that a suspicion that I have, is that a lot of people might think, um, well, what else would I do? Like, in other words, there's a big information deficit among homeowners, I would suspect, about things they could do as an alternative. And so it seems to me one thing that people who are interested in having there be fewer lawns should or could invest some time in is creating kind of showplace models of the way to do dryscaping and other things to show people like, here's what you could do. You want to know what you could do? Here's what you could do. Yeah. Right. And get, and even get the municipality to support like maybe the water office in your town, which is also helping implement the increased pricing for water could take some of those uh, resources and sponsor the development of model home landscaping and and encourage people to go look at it and see, well, you know, if you want to do something better than a lawn, you could do this. And here are the names of the plants and here are the people where you could buy the plants from, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Yeah. And it's some of it, though, if we're, when we're dealing with really entrenched norms, those educational campaigns can work to change the norms over time, but it still often takes a really long time. And so if we are, if we're up against a situation where we need to conserve water now or we need to make some change, that's where sometimes the law needs to lead if the norms are going to take too long to change. And some of this, you know, I, I was I presented this paper at a conference and Carol Rose was there and she had said that it's hilarious to look at the difference between Tucson and Phoenix, Arizona. And in Tucson, xeriscaping, sort of the native desert plant landscape is everywhere. It's very common. Um, whereas in Phoenix, people, everyone still has lawns. And it's not that they haven't seen nice xeriscaping, because certainly they have. Certainly some people in their community have done this. But it's, I think it still goes to those norms. I think that the idea of the sort of lush green grass, you know, even in the dead of summer in Arizona, um, people don't, that's a point of pride. And so even if they see these other alternatives, they're not, they haven't, they haven't moved on from that norm. I've got one more point about this, which is a more general point, And that's, um, uh, the, <laughs> it's Harlan here. We got we, another dog. dog. There's here. a different dog who makes an appearance in each, uh, he wants to make a point too, apparently. Right, right. <laughs> um, no, so the, the, the role of law in encouraging creativity is kind of interesting to me. Mm-hmm. Um, and so one way of seeing, the fascination with lawns uh, in society is not just as an entrenched norm, but as a, an area in which there's kind of a dearth of creativity. Um, it, so one thing that would happen, uh, and the, Joe alluded to this, if you if you ban them or if you don't like these kind of more state-based solutions, if, if you joined a community that had covenants preventing lawns, um, well, then people would ask this question that Joe just uh, just asked, like, well, what do I do? Because the lawn is the default answer to what you do in your front yard, right? Yeah. Uh, you plant grass, you put the stuff down, and then you go from there. Maybe you landscape after that, but that is the default. Well, if that's no longer the default, then there is no default anymore. And so one person tries one thing, another person does another, and you get, you know, an interesting creative mix of ideas about landscapes. Now, it, it may be that there is, uh, we, we don't have the, um, the time, energy, and attention to be creative in every facet of our lives. And so a, a law which forced creativity when it comes to landscaping or, um, or even food, or you can think of any of these areas, is a, in my mind is kind of a social judgment about where we want to encourage people to develop um, creative ideas. Yeah. Uh, and, and so maybe that's one result here. And, and, and 
we could, you know, if if we think that in fact a lot of people would like to live in a world where there are all kinds of creative landscapes, native landscapes, uh, where we learn from uh, the world around us rather than the world that we import in the form of uh, of pre-placed lawns. Um, if if we think that, then then well, maybe we do want to nudge people in this in this direction, and maybe we can't rely on market signals there either because the not the norm, not the love of lawns. That's not what's embedded in people's heads. Just the idea that it's the default. Mm-hmm. That it's just kind of what you do. Not because anyone loves it. Because I think a lot of people, when they go to parks, uh, you know, botanical parks and other they love what they see. It's just there's a gap between how, what you do there and what you do in your own home. Definitely. And, I don't and know the, if that makes sense. No, I think that's a great point. And also, you know, we talk about this like, oh, well, why doesn't everyone have a garden in their front yard instead of a lawn? Gardening takes time and expertise, and those of us, anyone who's tried to, you know, grow vegetables, what do you do when you get aphids? Or, you know, there's just a lot to deal with, and whereas lawns, you know, the person out there with the lawnmower, that's uh, almost ingrained culturally now. Um, and so I, I think that's exactly right. The, the idea of doing something else seems like a, a big time commitment and uh, a lot of learning, and it is. Speaking of time commitments, <laughs> we, we, we are out of time. All right. Um, and so I think this, I think what you've told us is that um, the state should pass a law forcing everybody to burn their lawn and fill it with used bottle caps. <laughs> is that? And then go to some renegade pop-up dinner nonsense. Right. Right. Where they will eat a local chicken. Right. And you can get a variance. If you don't like bottle caps, you can grow marijuana in your front yard. Perfect. No, no eating chickens, though, Joe. Remember, I'm vegan. Oh crap! Okay, so right. and so you don't even want the eggs. I don't no. understand why you're talking about chickens at all. <laughs> she wants them as pets. She wants to live in a world where there are domesticated animals Have around you ever doing met things. A chicken? Huh? Uh, yeah, I've met, you know, I've met chickens. Sure. You want a chicken as a pet? I, I apparently Sarah does. I don't. <laughs> Jeez. I think, I think that people, if they, I would prefer if people are going to eat eggs. I think it's better if they love their pet chickens and eat their eggs than buy them from a factory farm chicken. Would you, if you had your own chicken as a pet, Sarah, would you eat its eggs? No, because I think they still get a little upset when you take them away, you know. Um, but no, I, I have I have very few moral qualms with people eating the eggs of the chickens they raise as pets. As long as they got those chickens, okay, now we're getting into this whole other thing. But, you know, a lot of people who get backyard chickens get them from the same places that get that, that sell to factory farm chickens, which are places that kill all the baby male chicks and just raise the, the female chicks. So I do have the same moral concerns with that than I would with, with so we are gonna we're gonna have you back on another time this is true of all our guests they're all coming back uh, Sarah's, n- Sarah's no exception you're gonna come back and we will discuss our various moral failings great <laughs> listen that's th- gonna be a much longer episode if, <laughs> if I have to talk about my moral failings <laughs> oh thanks a bunch for joining us Sarah oh, of course. Appreciate it. guys that was fun all right we'll talk to you again soon okay. take care bye bye <laughs>